Forrester's done studies with us. Is you know the majority of the buyer's purchase decision is based upon their experience with the individual seller. And Gartner done some studies showing that the levels of trust that exist in a purchase transaction in B2B reside primarily with the seller, not with the company they work for. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, leaders. Welcome back. This is Ledge. I'm excited to welcome Andy Paul to the show today. Andy, would love if you give an introduction of yourself and your work to the audience. <laughs> You're making me work for, for this. I am <laughs> making you work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, gosh, yeah, I'm an author, speaker, consultant, uh, teacher, trainer, if you will, uh, focused on sales and have been for 22 years. I've sort of here because most recently I published a book called Sell Without Selling Out, which if people are watching this, they can see the copy of. Um, yeah, got to have one handy at all times. That's right. And um, have a podcast myself called Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, coming up close to 1,100 episodes. And I've been doing that for about seven years. And I... I like the book a lot. I have I've read the book and I told you that I read half the book. Let's be honest. You know, we're, we're trying to be transparent and authentic here. So I attempted to read the whole book prior to showing up. Uh, I resonated with a lot of, of what you had to say. And I'm not a, a sales book kind of guy. I usually fail out in the middle, but I'm, I'm going to try to, you know, finish this one. And I, I love this, this selling in concept. Mm -hmm. I'd love you to sort of give a, a summary of that. Sure. Well, yeah, let's set up the book sort of say you know, sort of as a seller, maybe you have sort of two personas, possible personas or brand identities, perhaps as brand image that you present to your buyer, which is you're either selling out or you're selling in and selling out is sort of the prototypical self-interested seller, right? I put my own interest ahead of those of the buyer. I'm pushy, I'm persuasive, uh, persuasion-driven purely, not really listening because, hey, why do I need to listen? Because my job is to persuade you to, <laughs> or to persuade you to buy my product. So I don't really care what your problem is. I just need to persuade you to buy my product. And contrast that with selling in, which is based on four pillars I described as connection, curiosity, understanding, and generosity. So and to contrast with sort of these learned behaviors, I think that are the selling out, the salesy behaviors that make you know people sort of cringe, buyers cringe when they encounter them, is it's a very human-oriented, I mean, connection, curiosity, understanding, generosity, these are innate human qualities that we all have. And you know, walk people through how to use these to be able to help the buyers be more effective in the way they make the decisions. Right, right. You know, I, I one other thing I was going to, I'm kind of a big Robert Cialdini fan, and and I, I honed in on your, uh, was like drawing the dichotomy of influence and persuasion. And I remembered, you know, I love the book, Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. And, and it made me just kind of 
dive into this mental rabbit hole of like, you know, isn't it interesting to try to own vocabulary for, you know, these common terms and, and kind of wrestle around mentally with which is good, bad. Otherwise, is it the same? What's the overlap of the Venn diagram and, you know, kind of all those things. And, and so I, I wondered what you thought of that. Cause certainly, you know, that the book, everybody knows that book. So. Oh, I've, yeah. I've had Cialdini on my show. Uh, uh, yeah. Right. Right. We've talked about it. And yeah. we started disagreeing about some things. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that, I mean, it's a brilliant book. I mean, it's so not trying to take anything away from it, but it is sort of an issue of vocabulary. And I think words are important, right, in terms of how you identify what you're doing, how it's received by people. And so the whole book is really based, my book is based on, are you being intentional about how you're presenting yourself, right, and being intentional about uh how you're being perceived by your buyers and the type of experiences you're creating for them during their buying process. Just by its very definition, persuasion, you know, this element of coercion associated with it. And, yeah, oh, absolutely. and, and which comes from the psychological elements. I mean, for sure. Yeah. Like, you know, basically we're saying like, how do we uh, use the mind against itself? <laughs> so, yeah. Right. Whereas influence by its very definition is, yeah, how are we able to have an effect on the actions and, and thoughts of people without the apparent use of force? And and I think from a seller standpoint, that's that's a much more accurate description of what you're trying to achieve, right? Is is and I set this dichotomy out in the book is yeah, you know, if you think your job is if you're selling out, you think your job is to go persuade somebody to buy your product. And if you ask most sellers what their job is overwhelming majority is going to say something along that lines. My job is to go persuade somebody to buy my product. To get somebody to buy stuff. Yeah. Right. And I think a seller's job and the way that I practice and the way that very successful people that I work with practice is now our job is to go listen to the buyer, understand the things that are most important to them in terms of the challenges they face and the outcomes they want to achieve by addressing those challenges and then help them get that. All right. So my job is to help the buyer get the things that are most important to them to help them succeed and in doing so then I succeed. Right. And I'll be transparent with the buyer that yeah, I'm only going to succeed if I can help you achieve what's most important to you. Yeah. Right. So one path yeah, is and- the path of, of influence as I lay out in the book and there's the path of persuasion. I think they're very distinct. Interesting. Yeah. No, I, I, I get that. And I totally resonate with that. I love me some psychological tools here and there, at least I think, but I want to, I don't think I want to use them as much as be aware of them, you know? So like what I took away from that body of work was like, okay, you know, I'm being manipulated at times and I don't even know it. <laughs> so, you know, that's yeah, good. Well, <laughs> there's this disclaimer yeah. that goes that even I think Cialdini has in the book and other people write about the similar topic is like, Hey, you know, here are these tools and use them ethically. It, yeah, like, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, but I mean, there's all sorts of, but there's well, still tools. And I think what you're no saying tools. is like the, the dichotomy of of tooling versus like almost humanity and, and charisma and value, you know, it, you don't, it, in essence, if you were to bring purely all of those valuable human things to the table, you don't need those tools at all. Well, it's yeah. Cause you're, you're having an influence. What happens is, is I describe in the book is when you connect with people at a human level and you start build the credibility and trust is what they do is they give you permission to influence them, right? They give you permission. Yeah, you can ask these more in-depth questions that if 
we don't have that connection, I'm not going to answer those questions, right? I'm not going to give you the same answers if we don't have that connection. It's it's really sort of permission-based. And yeah, that's just a different path. I mean... And permission is like a fast trust sort of mechanism. Yeah. Also. Like we don't yeah, get a you... lot of opportunities to develop that relationship unless you're in a long sales cycle, you know, type of thing. But you also don't want to like overburden people with a bunch of content and crap, you know? So... Right. Um, but even then, it, in the longer term, you know, sale that you talked about is... There's a company based on Australia has done a ton of win-loss analysis around the world. They've had you know, thousands of conversations with buyers. And they summarize sort of these nine reasons why you win deals and nine reasons why you lose deals based on all this data they collected. And the, <laughs> of the nine reasons why you win deals, seven of them were directly tied to the things I talk about in selling in pillars. Had nothing to do with the product, didn't have to do with the features, the pricing, delivery. It had to do with the human interaction between two people, or one or one person on the sell side and multiple people on the buy side. But it's that that human aspect of it that dominated this data, and it was true about why you lost deals. So you know, Challenger they talk about Challenger sale and Forrester's done studies with this. Is you know, the majority of the buyers' purchase decisions based upon their experience with the individual seller. And, and Gartner done some studies showing that the levels of trust that exist in a purchase transaction in B2B reside primarily with the seller, not with the company they work for. That's right. Yeah. Because like a lot of, and you see this all the time, you know, like people will follow the sales person they liked to another competing vendor, you know, and, uh, and I think that's why, you know, like <laughs> salesperson retention is a big, is a big deal because well, book part, of business is going to walk no matter what, you know, you can, you can document can. the hell out of it, but yeah. I mean, I think, I, th I think that's sometimes overstated that business walks with salespeople because I'm on record saying I would never hire somebody based on their, their network and their contacts or in the old days, what we said based on the Rolodex, but what it does is that people don't instinctively follow or naturally follow, but you're going to be given more opportunities to win business when you go to a new place because you had that connection, you had that track record with them. But, you know, that's the problem that, one of the problems that really exists and that we're trying to address through the book and also through our businesses is that the way sellers are trained primarily leans toward the selling outside of things, whether intentionally or not. And and there's this, this gap that exists, which is, yeah, and that's not criticizing sales training. There's lots of great sales training out there, but it's it's geared toward process and methodologies. And it's I categorize as, you know, we we invest a lot of money to train humans how to be sellers. But what the book is focused <laughs> on, what the book is focused on, and what we're focused on in our company is all right, that's great. But the missing piece is we also need to train sellers how to be human. Or and, untrain sellers to be human again. Yeah. Well, perhaps, right? <laughs> but I think, actually, I think some of these things are just things people don't learn, right? We, we assume when we're hiring young people into the workforce that they have these basic skills. You know, we put them into an entry-level sales job as an SDR or BDR. They're on the phone. You know, somebody that's 21 years old maybe have spent, you know, 30 minutes total actually talking to someone on the phone in their entire Ever. life, right? <laughs> because it's all about messaging, right? It's just different. You know, they're communicating constantly with their friends and building the connections they have through this asynchronous messaging. 
well, that's a valuable skill to have to be able to do that as well. But that's not the task they're being given. They're being the task of say, you need to talk to somebody on the phone, which you're not very practiced at, and learn how to connect with that person and build this connection and build some level of trust. So we can't assume that they know these things. And it's not a personal failing on anybody's part. It's just different. And so we really need to focus more effort on, yeah, keep training, sales training. That's valuable. But we need to do this as well as we need to help people learn how to become human. I've been steeped in the what used to be the accelerator, you know, startup, mentor, accelerator type of space for a decade now. And looking back, just realizing like we don't teach anybody anything about sales in in startup techie world like anything i mean it's like it's like almost like a dirty word like if you don't have a self-converting you know magic machine that just generates money and it's like but what's going on here well, you know and it's working waves though you see, i mean because i was telling somebody a story back in excuse me in 2008 i was helping a client we were raising a bunch of money for a startup you know raised about 17 million dollars back then and and you know series a and a large percentage of the VCs we ran to said, look, yeah, we're just not going to invest. You know, this, you're going to hire a sales team, right? Yeah, we're not going to invest in anybody that needs a sales team. You know, if it doesn't sell itself, you can't sell it like it's on Amazon. Of course, the irony was that that was really the start of the whole SaaS revolution, which was about full employment for salespeople. So they quickly changed their tune, but now they're going back to it with product-led growth again. And it's like, yeah, yeah we'll see. It, it does swing back and forth. It's yeah, just swing back and forth. I mean, the fact is... And, that, and if you have a product that has any sort of complexity and you're selling it to a human decision maker, a human needs to be involved in that. Yeah. I, I think there are great tools now that weren't available. Like I, I lean into video, you know, and, and to, to have a, a personality driven personal video made, I think, you know, it's sort of, we have at least more opportunities now to be asynchronously human. And like you said, with the, with the text messaging and, you know, different ways. And I think people that don't lean into that are, are missing out. But you can be selling out on any platform in any uh, timeliness of, of communication. And, and, and we all know this, like we receive, you know, 67 uh, LinkedIn e emails a day that, you know, are just absolute garbage. And, and you can just tell that it's like no you don't want to connect with me no you didn't have anything in common with me like you don't even have my name right you know <laughs> or or the offer is just so absurd that that it's like you didn't spend here you are on linkedin which is the resource you'd go to to research me and you're sending me a message that shows that you didn't even spend five seconds on my profile i mean i get i get yeah people to message me yeah, with well, some regularity, you know, it's several times a year, <laughs> saying, yeah, Andy, look at your profile. I think you'd be a great candidate to start a podcast. <laughs> it's like, uh, dude, <laughs> yeah, I've been, I don't know, maybe you spend a few seconds, you have seen that I've been doing this for a long time. Uh, I have a podcast. And so occasionally I'll call someone out, right? Not very often. I don't want to be a, a jerk about it, but I'll, yeah, I'll write back and say, yeah, I just couldn't help myself. Is is if you'd spent just a second look at my profile, you'd know. Right. And they would. I try to with, flip those and go. You know, you really need our sales training. <laughs> right. Well, but the 
the response you get from people is, well, I didn't have time or we don't do that. And it's just like, well, okay, you know, let's perpetuate the stereotype of the lazy, sleazy, pushy salesperson who doesn't really care about anything but themselves. Yeah. Uh, and do you think that's, does it ever, is it ever salesperson say driven in that way? Like, I, like you said, I think you said in a book in, in some way or not, I'm paraphrasing, but like nobody sets out to be sort of like the sellout, you know, like you just, are, you're just sort of trained into bad behavior. It's almost like nutrition. Like, you know, like when I stopped running 15 miles a day after college, no okay. one, everybody had, everybody had neglected to tell me you still can't eat 5,000 calories, calories a day. A day right? Yeah, right. You know, and I just think like, unintentional bad training has bad results, right? <laughs> you know, so. Well, yeah. I mean, part of it really has to do with not just educating people in sort of the skills and techniques and so on, but, but in the way that current sales training happens, but it's, it's the perspective you're giving people about what their job is. That's why I broke that out. So basically in the, in the book is your job is not to go persuade somebody to buy your product yet. That is how people are being socialized. We can go give them all the great training in the world after that about, you know, conventional sales training. But if they fundamentally think their job is to go persuade somebody to buy your product, salesy behaviors are going to pop out. It's just inevitable. But if they think their perspective is, oh, I'm really here to really understand what's most important to you and then help you get that, well, that's a whole different mindset and perspective. You're going to think, well, okay, how can I help you, you know, accomplish your job, which is to make an informed decision on this product, how can I help you achieve your desired outcomes? And it's, it's just a completely different perspective. So we have to reorient salespeople to think about, okay, what's my job? I'm sure you experienced too. There, there are, I think there's almost like the scripted version of what you just said that's coming out a lot. Like, you know, I really want to help you with your you're like, don't say pain points anymore. I just want to punch you in the face, right? You know, like, well, no, no, like, right. But you, you know, so you're like, you can do this poorly. <laughs> What's that? You must have read one of my blog posts about that because I agree with you. Yeah, don't, I hate the word right. pain points. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I do experience the, the scripted version of what you're talking about. And so like the, the word, you know, authenticity, pops in my brain a lot because it's like I, I sort of I know you're going through the motions of what you think you should say but you've just turned the thing into the thing that it shouldn't have been even with using those exact words and I think that comes back again to that human you know connection of, of just the charisma of actually caring <laughs> well yeah I think that's what it comes through right so I like to tell a story about early in my career, first year or two on the job, I was selling relatively large computer systems, uh, primarily into the construction industry. And I was fresh out of college. I was 21. I looked 16, if I was lucky. Uh, I knew absolutely nothing about business in a very real sense, right? Quick learner, but nonetheless. And yet CEOs were giving me their time and were talking to me. And... You know, as I sat back and sort of thought about it, it sort of became clear. I was like, well, it's just because I was showing up as someone who cared and who was curious, sincerely curious to learn about what was happening with them and what they wanted to try to accomplish. And as long as I approach people from that perspective, more often than not, 
people are going to give me their time. Because when they encounter somebody who think, oh, well, they really are here to help me. They really do care. They really are interested. Then that's a whole different perspective. You say, okay, well, it might be worth the investment of my time and attention with this person because maybe they can help. As opposed to the way they interact with most sellers is like, me, 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 me. It's like, yeah, yeah, I don't have time for you. Yeah, right, right. And have you... Have you found that you'll, you'll hear people sometimes say like, I only sell something I'm passionate about so I can kind of actually convey that passion. But, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know anybody that's like passionate about construction selling, you know, sort of equipment or whatever. And like, but I, I look at it as like, you know, I've, I've never been in startups are the same way. Like I'm not actually passionate about what I do. I'm passionate about, that, you know, like, no matter what I'm doing, like, I want to make this thing valuable to somebody, I want to do a good business, I want to work with good people, you know, and I think that's like the passionate seller or passionate entrepreneur, like, I don't care what this thing is, I just want to make sure that it actually adds value. And if it does, then I just want to figure out what that value is. But I'm not passionate about SaaS businesses at all. I kind of don't like them. I don't want to run them, but I sure know how to do things that will help them grow. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I mean, I agree with you. I think at heart, this idea that you want to be passionate about the product you're selling is is overblown. Um, yeah, I could really say the only sort of uh, time in my career, which has gone on for decades, where I'm really passionate about what I'm um, selling is really now, once I've started writing books and and uh, putting forth these philosophies and very practical ways for companies to improve themselves is, yeah, I think they're very important. So I am passionate about improving this profession. But yeah, for most of my career, I, I just, I oriented towards, I wanted to work for somebody that was going to teach me a lot. And I wanted to sell interesting things, right? Meaning interesting business, talk to interesting companies, deals themselves are interested. The product, yeah, they turned out to be fairly interesting for the most part. I worked in some interesting places, but uh, yeah, it wasn't like I was passionate about the product. I, mean, I spent 15 years in the satellite communications business. I mean, it was interesting. We met some, I traveled the world, sold on six continents, you know, big deals, you know, seven, eight, nine figure deals. But it was just, it's fun. But it wasn't like I was passionate about it. Right, right. It was fun, like the process of the doing of the the thing. And like, I, my checkpoint is always just like, you know, look, as long as we have integrity with what we're doing, and it actually adds value, it's not snake oil, you know, like, then, then it's fun just to be out there. And I get to talk to really interesting people, you know, people who invented stuff, people who have cool ideas. And, uh, and I, I like to be honestly just authentic. Like, and I have a lot of calls where I'm like, you should not buy this. Like, you're not ready for this. This won't add value because you're not listening to the way that it could add value. And, you know, like, I, I will not take your money. <laughs> no matter how much money I will make, it, it would be unethical for me to continue to per perpetuate this lie. <laughs> so, you know, that this will benefit you and, and other people that I say, like, look, I know you're not convinced and you're scared of being sold to. And, and the, the fact is that, it, you know, it will make literally no difference to my life if you do this or not, but it might be negative for yours if you don't. And 
and call me back if you want to. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think more people tell the story about walking away from business than actually do it. Uh, and, but it's good when people can, right. To know what you're good at and where you can add value. And yeah, if you can't, yeah, life's too short because if you take that business that you're not really a good fit for, then there's going to be heartache for the buyer and heartache for you. So why do that? You no, know, there's going to be a lot of heartache for you. And I tell people that, man, do not chase revenue and, um, or understand the, the tax you are putting on yourself for that, particularly in the early stage business. And, and, and I, I work primarily in B2B services. So, you know, it's agencies, consultancies, MSPs, you know, things like that. Like you need to understand that that may have a nice sticker on it, but you are going to pay dearly if you go outside your lane and take that. So. Yeah. Not all revenue is equal. And you need to understand oh, that. Goodness. No. Yeah. yeah. Big interest rate on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are times so, in a small company where, and I've experienced this, where you deliberately take a customer that's a stretch, but you do it strategically because you know they're going to make you better. And coming from a products and services background, you know, complex systems. Yeah. I mean, in three companies, I remember where we deliberately took a client that we knew was really going to push us, but they did. And it wasn't always fun, but the end result was we were then able to go service those type of customers successfully and be prepared to take the next bigger step with customers. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's that, that's a first leap into that next sort of like, this is 10 times bigger than we ever tried before. And uh, it's going to sting. Uh, but we know we can do it. We just haven't been given the pass or the credibility yet. And, and we really, really want that logo, you know, so well, I think so more than it. the logo, you want the experience, right? So you can actually go confidently to these next bigger deals and say, yeah, we can do this, right? It's not going to ruin us. We know how to do it. And I think that's, you know, the step that companies, to your point, you know, get too excited. Let's go capture that. You know, it's like the dog chasing the car. What do you do when you actually capture it? Um, is is yeah just gonna be very very strategic about it yeah absolutely so go back in time i mean you you have some great stories in the book and you know it's, it's like how'd you get here like you know you didn't set out and like i'm gonna be a sales guru <laughs> no you know when i grow up right <laughs> you know, so, even being in sales like, wasn't on the radar yeah I'd... yeah right and uh, what when you you know i always think of that that episode on the office. I don't know if you're an office mm -hmm. fan, yeah, but, yeah. you know, um, Dwight, uh, is receiving faxes from future Dwight, you know, that <laughs> warning him that the coffee is poisoned and stuff. You know, and I always think like, if, if you can be future Dwight, you know, and send the Sharpie fax back to yourself 20 years ago, when we actually had fax machines, um, uh, you know, what would you scroll on the paper? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that, and this may surprise people, but I think that the future of sales is actually you know, more human, not less. And it doesn't necessarily mean there'll be more salespeople, but we're increasingly, it's, this is not you know, a new trend. It's been going on for a couple of decades now. It's been certainly accelerated and amplified by what's happening in the SaaS world is that you know, the actual differences between products and services become smaller and smaller. And there are more competitors out there in the marketplace. 
And when a buyer has to make a decision, when all other things are equal, when all else is equal, what's the tiebreaker? And I believe already this exists, and I think it's become more the case going forward, is the tiebreaker will be their experience with the individual seller. How did they help us achieve our job and their job, a buyer's job? This is you know, something I talk about in the book is, and people, you ask people, what's a buyer's job? They say, well, to earn a return on the rest. It's like, no, no, what's the buyer's job? That's the customer's job. The buyer's job, you know, when the customer's in the buying mode, what their job is, is to quickly gather and make sense of the information they need to make an informed decision with the least investment of their time, attention, and resources possible. Right? I don't want to spend a year to make this decision if I can make it in six months. Right? Because there's value to making this decision and putting this out in the field or implementing this, this system, this product, whatever. Why are we going to stretch it out? So the problem is, and sellers like to point the finger at buyers and saying buyers are slow buyers. And I believe in the overwhelming majority of the cases, it's that slow sellers are slow sellers. Right, They're not helping the buyer get their job done, which is to quickly gather and make sense of this information they need to make an informed decision without you know, a huge outsized investment of time and attention and resources. And so if your seller can help your buyer do that, and I talk about this, you haven't got to the end of the book yet where I talk about this, but you know, every, every buyer has three constraints when they make a decision. Herbert Simon, Nobel Prize winner, wrote about this. It's called his theory of bounded rationality. Is we all have constraints of time, information, and understanding of that information, right? We don't have unlimited time. We don't have limited access to information. We don't have access to un perfect understanding of the information we get. So when people are looking to make decisions, and Simon came up with this, as he said, what they do is they research it until they find a solution that satisfies their requirements and suffices to achieve their desired outcomes. And he created a new word called satisfice. So when people make a satisficed decision, that's what's called the good enough decision. And this is what the overwhelming majority of companies do when they're purchasing products is say, look, we found a solution that satisfies our requirements and it suffices for us to hit our desired outcomes. We could spend another six months looking at other solutions, but the incremental return on that additional investment of time just doesn't exist, right? We're not going to find something that's so much better by spending three more months that's better than what we found today. So let's go. Let's make our decision. And, and this is really powerful for sellers to understand is that, A, most of your customers, there's exceptions, but most customers aren't trying to make the absolute best decision. Simon called those maximizers. Maximizers will look at everything possible out there, every alternative possible to make a decision. And what the research has found is when maximizers actually do make better decisions, but it comes at a cost, right? They spent the additional time and investment and second cost is to the seller is because maximizers tend to be the most unhappy customers because they're concerned that there's something that was better out there that they missed. So, so again, satisficers, this is the way most most decision makers are. This is good enough. Let's do it. Right? This is good. This meets our objectives. This meets our future objectives. Let's go. And 
when you understand that as a seller, then you can start structuring your selling process or the buyer's journey to hit the milestones that enable them to get to that point of satisfying fast. Right. And Forrester has done some research on this saying, yeah, if you can be basically be the seller that gets the buyer to that point of satisfying first, your odds of winning the business like 60%. So, and that, uh, that response rate studies and all those things is like who gets there first is like starting the race of satisficing prior to anyone else if they're doing it well. To some degree, right? Responsiveness is important. That's my whole first book was about responsiveness basically. And it's the power of responsiveness. It's another one of these human traits, right? I mean, I've, I sort of built a big chunk of my success, in my career on responsiveness. Response is not just being fast, but being fast with the information the buyer needs to help them make progress in their buying process, right? So speed by itself doesn't do anything, but speed with, with value has value to the buyer. So yeah, I lay out in the last chapter of the book, yeah, if you can be the first seller to connection, the first seller to trust, the first seller to understanding, the first seller to... Because once you have that mutual understanding with the buyer, then you're in a position to say, okay, a really critical step is now we're going to co-create this vision of success. What's success going to look like using our product and service? And when the buyer gets that image implanted, if you're the first one to create that vision of success, again, your odds of winning go up a lot. So do you get there by being pushy and being persuasion-driven, being salesy? Nope. You get there by being a human that connects with people, builds a level of trust, credibility, ask great questions, make sure you truly understand things that are most important to them, and then help them get that. You win more. And this is, this is yeah, the book really addresses a very fundamental level. One of the most pressing problems in B2B is low win rates, not just in SaaS, but across, across industries. Um, there's recently a book published that had uh, researched, I think, 14,000 buying organizations. And what they found is that the average win rate on deals, this is across the world, average win rate on deals 100K and higher in B2B world is only 17%. Meaning that you're not even winning one of every five of your most qualified opportunities. It's funny you say that because I, in my first foray into, you know, X million dollar deal work. I had never sold anything. And I just was like, I don't know. And then like after year one, it was like, you know, 20% hit rate. And I'm, you know, sort of former type A, uh, all A type of student. I'm like, that's terrible. And people were like, this is amazing. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, terrible. What's right. going on here? Well, it's now those, those win rates get celebrated and, you know, like SaaS world is. And I'm just like, but that's like, that's a lousy batting average even, you know, and like this, this isn't harder than hitting a baseball, you know? So. Well, yeah, there's two points I make about win rates and, you know, there are lots of people maybe that disagree about this, but hey. If you're, if you can't win at least half your deals, your qualified opportunities, right? Then you've got one of two problems. One is, yeah, you're, you need to improve how you sell. You need to improve the experience the buyer has of you as your seller. Or two is maybe you don't have product market fit. And if your win rates are really down at 20%, 20, 30%, 
you really have to ask yourself, do we, you know, do we really have this product market fit that we trumpet that we've achieved? And I would argue that you don't. So it's a combination of things. And unfortunately, you know, too much of the tech world has become accustomed to these low win rates. And the way they scale is by just increasing deal flow from the top of the funnel. We become very adept at that. But you know, we've lived in this fantasy world for 14 years since 2008, 2009, where everything's always grown up and to the right. And we've got a whole generation of sellers that are going to find out that, oh, I can't just play the odds, right? You know, if I get 20% of increasing deal flow, I can still grow the company. Because no, they're going to find out they actually have to sell and learn how to help the buyer quickly gather and make sense of information and make an informed decision, actually help the buyer satisfy. And that's going to be a challenge for many because it's going to be a different world the next few years. We'll get back to high growth again, but the next few years is going to be a different terrain. And it's really a time for people that are serious about having a career in sales, a successful career in sales, is to learn that, yeah, now's the time where I really need to hone my, my skills and not my conventional sales skills, but how I, you know, my human oriented skills to help my buyers achieve what they want to achieve. Certainly there's a, a component of, you know, sort of personal study and there's a component of training. And it's just like, if you're tactically looking at like, or someone's listening, they can kind of hear, you know, yeah, I want to get better at that. Now, of course they can call Andy Paul and read the book and, you know, but also what, what do you do when you're, you know, and I experience this like an overwhelming amount of just noise and crap, you know, in our space. Like I, I for example, tried to research. I really want to understand objections, and the amount of work to understand and find any decent piece of literature about, you know, objections. Like literally, what are the objections? Not how to handle them. Because there's a, a huge amount of crap about that, <laughs> but well, like, I, want me to simplify it for you in just like a minute and a half? I'll save you from reading a book. First of all, no one objects to anything, right? Yeah, that's not like it's not like a courtroom drama where your buyer standing up and go, "Ledge, I object to that pricing." No, right. first of all, <laughs> they don't care enough to object to it. So let's just yeah, words matter. People aren't objecting. Objection puts people on the defensive. Oh, no, they're objecting. They're not objecting. They have a question. That's what, right, what we right, call objection. Yeah. It's just a question. Yeah. No, they I don't understand. That. So find out what the question is they're asking. You do that by asking questions to them. Right? Yes. And then answer the question. People have written <laughs> books about this. How do we handle objections? Screw handling objections. You don't handle it. You answer questions. It's so interesting to hear you say that because I do think of it exactly that same way. And I have, I guess, redefined objection in my head as what is a blocker or speed bump to this deal getting done? Um, because at, when I write a call notes, I do, I annotate my positive reactions from, from them. What, what got a positive reaction? What was a need that was expressed? What was a question that was expressed? What was an objection, meaning something that's going to stop this from going through now or soon? And then also I just label insights like, hmm, that's interesting. 
And that's all I do when I annotate things. But when I think of objection, it's like stuff that someone didn't know, didn't know how to ask. And my handling of objections from a sales intelligence standpoint is to go right to marketing and sales enablement and say, I need content that addresses this. I need it to be higher in the funnel so that we don't spend a lot of money me telling people this one-to-one. And I find that that looping process makes better and better qualifications and therefore um, call volume goes down because there's no crappy ones at the bottom. Win rate goes up and uh, that's kind of all I did. And I just, I never read a book in my life and, you know, sort of just, I don't know, it just made sense. And I don't know why it made sense, but I just started doing that and millions of dollars happened. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm a, the, the, the thought behind using the word objections is that somehow the buyer is looking for a reason not to do something. Well, if they're looking for a reason not to do something, they wouldn't be talking to you in the first place. Right. So well, fact- some buyers, like at least on the outbound side, would just were like, I'm, I'm interested in what you said. I would like to know and put this on my radar. So they don't have timeliness, I guess. Is the- well, but that's not an objection, right? When you're doing cold outreach to somebody and, and they say, look, I'm just not interested at this time. Hey, just what you said. Well, okay. Would you mind if I sent you some information? Then, you know, you go through a, there's a way to ask for type of information they want that, that opens the door to perhaps do a conversation. If not, you send them what they asked, you know, what they said they wanted and then follow up at some point. But it's, it's, yeah, we just go spend so much time and effort trying to get sellers to quote unquote overcome objections that end up just pissing off the buyer more than anything else. Well, you know, Andy, you are a compelling guy because I'm looking at the calendar, realizing that I'm going to jam you up into the end of this, you know, conversation. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you, you know, for for spending time. I, I love the insights. I feel like I just got a free coaching session. So, uh, you know, good, good job on, uh, on, on having a podcast. And, and we talked about that off mic, you know, I'd recommend to everybody that, uh, you at least look at the podcast landscape as a, an opportunity. I would not get to talk to cool authors if I didn't have a, Oh, I feel so to talk to them. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I tell people that hosting a podcast is one of the most selfish things I've ever done because I get to talk to all these smart people. Right, right. And and eventually, like the osmosis, like you're always like, wow, he's an influencer. And you're kind of like, are they talking about me? You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> would you be willing to interview this CEO of this unicorn company? Are you serious? Like, <laughs> Would I be willing? If I emailed last year to beg for that, I couldn't get it. And I think that's that's just the interesting thing of uh, people banging their heads against you know, I, I need to, I want to be an influencer or a thought leader. Like it's just straight osmosis and hard work. <laughs> and well, I think yeah, consistently you know, consistent produce, work, consistently yeah. produce good content. And yeah, I mean, people will find you. Excellent. You've got good stuff out there for folks that are resonating. How and where should they uh, contact and be aware of your stuff? Sure. I mean, LinkedIn's a great place to start. Very active on LinkedIn. Uh, Post fairly frequently, yeah, you know, at least daily. And um, yeah, you can please, you know, follow me there. Uh, connect with me if you want. Uh, you can visit my website, andypaul.com, and have information about the book there. A little fun assessment people can take to see if they're selling out or selling in. Awesome, and make sure to check out uh, Andy's podcast as well, yes, where thank he you. has produced 
more than double the total episodes of my entire life already. So <laughs> very, very, very impressive. Thank you for coming out. Yeah, Andy, uh, totally enjoyed it. And uh, we look forward to more later on. All right. Thanks, Ledge. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.